Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Today, as always, it's my pleasure to welcome Mark Langell, the Dodgers team historian, back to the program. Mark, thank you again for joining me. Sam, it's my pleasure to be with you. And uh, congratulations is in order. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's always nice to do a show the day after you clinch the National League West. So uh, it was a very interesting day in Arizona, and I'm sure one that both uh, Dodger fans and Arizona fans won't forget. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. And speaking of which, let's let's talk about that. Uh, they 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 ran out to the pool, which I can understand in the moment. Uh, I can also understand why Arizona would be mad. What's your take on it? Well, exactly. I think that it's nice to see the Dodgers caught up in the celebratory uh, emotion of it all. And to give you a little background, the Diamondbacks had requested uh, not to go onto the field after celebrating, uh, you know, have a little celebration on the field, go in the clubhouse. But their initial thought was don't go back onto the field because from a crowd control standpoint, it's kind of hard to police that. And you can understand, you don't necessarily want to have uh, victory laps and things like that because uh, mm-hmm. from a security standpoint, how do you tell the fans they have to go if they think something is still in progress? And, so and that, plus, this isn't, this isn't a World Series clinch. It's not like, you know, there's going to be plenty of Dodger fans out there wanting to celebrate, but at the same time, it's not the last game of the year. Exactly. But I think the one thing that nobody expected uh, was ballplayers scaling the wall and suddenly, like an Esther Williams movie, they're running, they're jumping around in the pool and I could see Arizona's standpoint saying, look, this is our house, this is our pool, and what are you guys doing? And mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, it wasn't malicious on their part in terms of uh, breaking anything or anything like that. They got caught up with it. Uh, but you could definitely see if the shoe was on the other foot, if the Dodgers had a pool, and just imagine if the Giants were jumping around in a Dodger pool. Uh, naturally, right. uh, the Dodgers would be upset. So. Uh, I, I don't think that anybody ever thought that you'd uh, uh, have the lasting image of a Dodgers Western Division title uh, would actually be in an opponent's pool. That is a new one, right. and uh, I don't think we'll ever forget that image of players jumping around. You know, the other thing that's interesting is from a standpoint of a ball club, you don't necessarily want your Dodger players who are about to go into the playoffs uh, doing stuff like belly flops and things they're normally not used to because – with all the freak injuries in baseball, suddenly yeah. if you're doing cannonballs and things that you're not normally uh, used to, uh, about a week ago, Yasiel Puig was at the plate in the ninth inning, and he had a sore hip. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, you do want to get the game-winning hit, but then again, would they dogpile and forget that he's hurt? And so it's there are a lot of emotions going on. You have the excitement of it all, but then you sort of want to be careful, too, because you've got the playoffs, and then... And in, in addition to possible injuries, you've got bruised feelings on the opponent's side because they're saying, "Look, you didn't have to go into the pool." So right, uh, and well, we're not talking—we're not talking about an economy-sized pool here. We're talking about basically 
an oversized jacuzzi. Exactly. And so uh, I, I just don't think that anybody uh, uh, ever thought of that. And, and you can be sure now that uh, uh, that landmark, it will become a Dodger uh, a Dodger landmark in the Arizona ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could use the pun Waterloo as far as uh, what happened to Arizona. And uh, at least at least nobody got hurt. That's the important yeah. thing. If that's oh, the worst exactly. thing that happened. It's not like a benches clearing brawl or anything like that. Uh, if uh, if using the pool uh, caused bruised feelings, it's a heck of a heck of a lot better than people actually getting hurt. That's what you never want to see. Right, and that would have been the unfortunate karma part of it. And and, and you know, come to think of it, I'm surprised Walter O'Malley didn't install pools in 1962. You know, with it being Hollywood and and that kind of uh, camaraderie with the, with the place. But but we'll, well get more into Walter O'Malley later. I was going to say, jump in and say that, you know, Walter O'Malley, when he was building the stadium, the one thing that he wanted to have in center field was a musical fountain and to change colors and and make noise when a ball player hit a home run. Plumbing-wise, they couldn't do it, but Walter was way ahead of you. He wanted to have some sort of waterworks in center field. And when they built Angel Stadium, uh, I believe that that was there at the beginning, or did that come later? That was part of the renovation, and uh, the funny thing about Anaheim Stadium, and uh, you wouldn't know that that's number four on the hit parade as far as oldest ballparks. Uh, Fenway, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, and uh, 1966. When they did the renovations, it looked so new, kind of like Disneyland, you don't realize that that ballpark's that old either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty remarkable. It, 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 it still has a very modern feel, and, and it's pretty amazing when you think about it that it does not have a facade especially after Ebbets Field the facade of Ebbets Field was so famous exactly right but every ballpark has unique characteristics and uh, now on the west coast we suddenly have two gray beards in Dodger Stadium and Angel Stadium mm-hmm. it's 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 fantastic I haven't been out there in a very long time the only Dodger game I've ever gone to uh, it was very fitting that they were giving away a Don Newcomb bobblehead and I, I bet you you even remember this night Jose Lima was pitching, who I was a big fan of at the time, and uh, I was also a big fan of Adrian Beltre, and uh, I was out there for a month in 2004, and they were down 2-1. to one. Eric Gagne got to uh, hold it in the ninth inning, and down 2-1, to one, Adrian Beltre hit a walk-off, uh, a walk-off two-run home run that went just under my section. That was such an exciting time, and and when you think of Jose Lima, now we think about him and his memory in October uh, because of his playoff victory over the Cardinals in Game 3 of the NLCS. That was the first Dodger postseason win since 1988. Uh, Lima spent only one year with the Dodgers, regular season 13-5, and after making the the team as a non-roster player, and you immediately think of Sal Magley, if you're a Brooklyn fan, because they picked him up in May of 56, he goes 13-5 and five and leads them to the postseason. Yeah, and, and it's very unfortunate that he's passed, but uh, he was certainly an exciting character and, and still brings smiles to a lot of people around uh, the world of baseball. He definitely was. Lima time was a fun time, and now it's a fun memory. Absolutely. Well, we're going to move on about uh, you know 70 or so odd years in the past, and uh, get back to 1939 Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, that general era uh, is where I'm still focused on right now. And I want to talk specifically, we talked about Larry McPhail uh, before, but let's get into Leo DeRocher and the character that he was when he was on the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, and 1939 was his first year. 
uh, I guess my first question would be, can you think of the instance other than 1941 and the famous train passing Harlem uh, story, can you think of uh, the first time that that Leo got fired by Larry? Well, I think the first time that they would have gotten fired would have been uh, the Pete Reeser incident, when in spring training that Larry McPhail had made a deal with Branch Rickey to hide Pete Reeser on a minor league roster. And back then it's before free agency and you're signing all the amateur prospects. DeRocher doesn't know what's going on. And he sees this, you know, this young, talented kid and he puts him in the lineup. And he gets a note from McPhail saying, don't play him. And it's a cryptic note. And he's like, what are you talking about? And right off the bat, he's like, I'm the manager. I'll play whoever I want. And Larry McPhail gets mad. And I'm sure that was probably the first instance where even if he wasn't fired, he knew you're dealing with a boss that's maybe irrational or just not making sense as far as mm-hmm. these decisions. And McPhail suddenly realized that he had a guy in DeRocher that wasn't going to back down. And so I think right off the bat with the Pete Reeser incident, uh, there was there was going to be no uh, no compromise between those two. It, I think that uh, it was obvious that uh, screaming at each other was going to be the best way of resolving things, and then hopefully it blew over in the morning and, and everything became okay. But they were two strong-willed individuals, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm sure that McPhail liked that. And But then again, when McPhail thought he was right, that wasn't a quality that he liked in DeRocher, uh, his ability to fight back. Right, exactly. Now, now that happened in the the, uh, the spring of 1939 or the spring of 1940. It's either 39 or 40. Um, I'm trying to think as far as the exact date. It's just an it, he went something like 10 for 10, and yeah. it was just you know the telegram that he got and things like that. You can understand the confusion on Derosier's part. Why aren't you letting me play this guy? And mm-hmm. uh, you can and, and McPhail is not going to brag to everybody that he's got a secret deal with uh, with Branch Rickey, who at that time was in charge of the Cardinals. And you know, I think some of the other things that McPhail had to deal with, not only just DeRocher and revamping the ball club, but also trying to revamp the whole attitude of the organization and mm-hmm. trying to turn it into a winner because. You know, they drew so much in the 1930s with a lousy team, and it took forever for them to try to get rid of Wilbert Robinson as the manager because he had really succeeded in a power vacuum uh, when Ebbets dies. And so, you know, changing the culture, bringing in DeRocher, and it wasn't that Burley Grimes wasn't a, was a bad manager. I think they were indifferent in 38 as far as bringing them back. Um, but just there was probably just something that he saw in Leo as far as this uh, younger, brash, uh, tough guy. And, you know, he needed DeRocher's toughness uh, to be able to just say, look, we're not settling for mediocrity. We've got to fight. We've got to be a contender again. You know, it reminds me, though, Gurley Grimes is just uh, basically a long line of managers that, do make improvements with the team. It's just that the next year they they need something new, kind of like George Bamberger in 1983 with the Mets. And then you you know you kind of needed David Johnson, who had just won uh, a, a little World Series. Things You're exactly like that, right. You know? You're exactly right. And if you look at the 1930s, uh, just the revolving door in the front office, and just trying to have some stability. And 
the facilities and, for example, uh, having a new concrete grandstand, but then it, not only is it not filled, but the way it's constructed, it's not as good mm-hmm. as a wooden grandstand. Yeah, and quite, quite timing. On, on, I mean, the Dodgers just really, really had impeccable timing with everything leading up to Larry McPhail. <laughs> exactly. And McPhail also brings in Red Barber, and he tears up the radio boycott contract in terms of keeping radio off the air. So many things are going on at that time. Uh, DeRocher is just a piece in the puzzle. By the time they get to 41 and they're a contender, then DeRocher's sort of feeling his oats, and he knows that uh, he's now the popular guy. And kind of like Wilbert Robinson, he's sort of the people's choice in terms of the great leader. And then McPhail leaves after 42, so DeRocher for his time uh, in the 40s is in charge. So it's a it's a cycle in terms of whoever was in charge at the time, whoever was successful at the time, uh, but also the the country and the and the franchise. So many things. It just wasn't like the 1950s when everything was smooth in a way as far as a system in place. Uh, the 30s and early 40s, uh, very turbulent times with the franchise, just because of the turnover in the front office, the turnovers in the players, uh, and then the on, onset of the war. Uh, it's a very interesting period to look at. It is, and Leo must have been uh, really a, a main character. And with everybody gone, uh, all those players gone, he must have really been the character. You know, the, the narrative kind of swam around, other than Branch Rickey coming on board. Well, he was, and then when when Branch Rickey comes aboard, he works on Leo as a leader because now suddenly the pennant contenders, you know, from '42, you've got a worn, torn roster. Uh, by 43 and 44, and they go back to being non-contenders, now it's up to DeRocher to have leadership. And Branch Rickey wanted him to uh, go on some military trips and be able to be exposed to that uh, part of the the, uh, uh, armed forces. And that's a different type of leadership. And so DeRocher goes through different phases, too, as far as first being a player and then being an overachieving manager. But then, you know, you realize what everything means in the context when you go on a military tour during a world war. And so suddenly DeRocher has a different type of uh, mindset, and he realizes during the war also uh, that baseball is is entertainment. Yes, you have maybe a fourth or fifth place team, uh, but you just can't complain about lousy pitching or a poor offense when your country is in the middle of a war. You realize that the baseball franchise is there uh, for blood drives, for... Uh, bond sales and everything like that, and so he sort of had to change hats and and sort of wear an ambassador hat as well. Uh, that didn't happen in the early days of his of his uh, time as Dodger manager because he's trying to win. Uh, but in the 1940s during the war, Leo sort of becomes a different type of symbol of a leader. It, it wasn't just trying to win a pennant. Uh, in a way, everyone was trying to win a war. Right, and you hear about the Brooklyn Dodgers and kind of becoming the armed services team, you know, or at least that's what the movies of the time uh, is, the propaganda of the movies of the time. It was always, the the soldiers were always Brooklyn fans. Exactly, because they came from the neighborhood. One of my favorite uh, display ads, um, there's two soldiers and they're off off at war and there's a cartoon and, and he's holding a bayonet and he's got the helmet on and he says, I'm defending my right to boo the Brooklyn, the uh, New York Giants. And, you know, <laughs> that's just the way it was as far as uh, the emotion of it all back there. Uh, one of the other poignant moments is to see sailors at the ballpark. 
because right. you know it's a timeless it's a timeless image to see soldiers and sailors at the ballpark knowing around the corner uh, what they may be facing and maybe it was sort of a last uh, uh last break a last chance a last thing to grasp as far as a piece of home before they were shipped out uh, so Ebbets and DeRocher and the Dodgers at that point uh, became very important as far as uh, the country goes. Uh, when Franklin Roosevelt gave the green light letter in 42, Judge Landis, the commissioner, had asked, you know, should we continue with baseball? And he said absolutely, uh, because not only of the morale, uh, but also the jobs it provides uh, and the recreation and the distraction uh, and the relief uh, for those in the country to have something to focus on uh, except for worrying about the war 24-7. Fascinating time. It's going to be fascinating when we get into that part of the TV series, uh, the, the, uh, the World War, and uh, the way New York was affected by it is, is very, very uh, interesting. Uh, but, but in terms of Leo DeRocher, it brings up Branch Rickey and, and his relationship with him. And what, how, how did they interact? He, it, it dates, their relationship dates all the way back to the Cardinals. Uh, he's the one who traded DeRocher, I believe, to Burley Grunz. So what was Leo and Branch's relationship like? Well, when Branch takes over in 42, he realizes that he has to adapt uh, because it's during the war, uh, DeRocher has popularity, and, you know, Branch Rickey has to figure out a way to push Leo's buttons in a way that's going to be effective. Uh, McPhail was the type to scream and yell, I'm in charge, and Ricky had a system, and Ricky knew that DeRocher could be effective, uh, but he also wanted to be able to cultivate him as a leader. And so uh, just like any ball player that gets a different manager and, it, and, and the manager has a different style, uh, Ricky had so many things going on. It, he wasn't going to micromanage DeRocher. He was going to give him players that uh, could make him succeed and, and things like that. That obviously wasn't able to be done during the war, Later, when he stocked the roster, he was able to, to build it up. Uh, but Ricky, behind the scenes, would work on Leo as a leader, and he wasn't the type to publicly embarrass him. And I think for DeRocher, it made it a lot easier to work with a guy like Ricky than it did with a guy like McPhail, as far as the, uh, the back and forth and the fact that they had a relationship uh, going back to the Cardinal days. Okay. Uh, and so even though... Branch Rickey wasn't exactly the, the uh, he probably had his issues with the, the gambling and whatnot. Uh, he let, did, was, I guess, did he let it slide or was there ever a time that that really, besides when Happy Chandler uh, um, suspended Leo, was there ever a time before that that, that uh, they came, uh, they butted heads? I'm sure that he had to let it slide, and I'm sure behind the scenes uh, there was either counseling or there were uh, times when he would uh, give him either sermons or advice and things like that. And DeRocher knew with Ricky there were certain things that you know were sensitive to Branch in terms of the language and and uh, you know Ricky not, Ricky not uh, wanting to have alcohol and things like that. So. DeRocher had to behave a different way around Ricky because obviously he's not going to be confrontational with his boss. Um, so I think they both had to adjust to each other and, and realize, too, your backdrop is World War II and you've got a depleted roster and these two are big names and they've got to make it work. And so Ricky's taking over and he's 
wanting to help the franchise and be a success. And by that time, they'd been in the 41 World Series. They're pennant contenders in 42. So as a brand, it's still strong. So they're still working together. And they know that the by the end of the war, uh, Ricky's still going to have his ideas about the farm system and everything like that. And he knows, just like anybody, as long as you have an effective manager, you're going to keep him around. And Leo still had the fire to win. And just like uh, Larry McPhail, Branch Rickey knew that a guy like DeRocher, uh, he was going to do everything he could to win. So he may not have liked some of the personality traits or some of the hobbies or the habits that he had. Um, but bottom line, just like today, uh, if you can win, uh, there's a lot that you're going to overlook. Uh, if you think that your manager can be a success in that dugout. Right. It's just all about professionality and not letting it affect uh, the work that you do. And um, moving on from Branch Rickey and Leo DeRocher, I do want to get back to Branch Rickey at some point, but today I'd like to focus on Walter O'Malley and his relationship with the Dodgers before he came onto the scene, the actual uh, not just before he bought the shares, but before he became the Dodgers' uh, main lawyer. Uh, before 1940, what was Walter O'Malley's relationship as part of the Brooklyn Trust? What was his relationship with the Dodgers uh, uh, generally like? Well, generally, he was the point person uh, between the trust company and the franchise. And originally, uh, he's a very successful uh, businessman. You know, during the 1930s, He's successful. He has an architectural background. He has a business background. And so uh, he's he's very shrewd as a businessman to be able to make money and be successful during that time. And originally, when he had his relationship with the ball club as the point person, uh, he realized that it was a way to be able to take clients to the ball game. And so he ne- he didn't necessarily have uh, designs on ownership early because he's still working on his law career and uh, things like that. But gradually he sees, uh, just like Branch Rickey and the business of baseball and making money, he sees it from a detached point of view as far as as a business model. This could be big. And so he's not a frustrated ex-athlete or anything like that because Branch Rickey uh, had been a a former catcher and, and been in the major leagues and a manager. Walter really didn't have an athletic background, but he brought a business background and slowly but surely, first by entertaining clients at the game and then looking at it from a bottom-line business standpoint, gradually he had an interest in the business model. And fortunately for him, the 1940s, it was a time when he could just gradually uh, increase his influence and whether it's uh, purchasing shares or having relationships uh, with John Smith, uh, some of the other owners, uh, he could, from a business standpoint, he didn't need to compete with Branch Rickey in terms of player moves or anything like that uh, from business. But for business and the bottom line, uh, he had influence behind the scenes because he could see if you did it correctly, you could make a lot of money in baseball. So who brought John Smith on of Pfizer? That was Walter O'Malley? I don't think it was O'Malley. I think uh, uh, as far as the Brooklyn Trust uh, Pfizer's there, but I don't. If he did, it was an organizational decision. There's nothing right. that says he actually brings him in. Uh, it would have been uh, a, a committee, the executives at the time, uh, bringing somebody in as an investor. But at that point, he couldn't have brought in John Smith because he's a very low minority owner at the time. And later, uh, when Smith passes away, 
his widow, May, that was one of the key things uh, for Walter to be able to get that block. And that mm-hmm. was the really the – if she had backed Ricky, uh, then O'Malley might have been out. But instead, uh, they backed O'Malley, and that was the block that he needed to eventually uh, take control of the franchise in 1950. Now, in terms of Branch Ricky coming aboard and uh, starting to work with Walter O'Malley, uh, did Branch Ricky uh, make judgments uh, about the way Walter O'Malley would do business, and, and not with with the baseball really in mind, but with uh, you know they both wanted to make money and they both knew how to make money. Uh, but what did what was Branch's immediate take on Walter O'Malley? I don't really think there was one. I don't because behind the scenes you never had any uh, public criticism on either side. Um, you had a business side. And Branch had the power at the time, and uh, Branch knew that whatever was going to happen, he had to uh, get the approval of the board. The other key thing to consider is too, when when they were debating whether or not to sign Jackie Robinson, he had to get the he had to get permission from the other owners, and Walter O'Malley would have been part of that group, and so O'Malley would have been part of that group discussion as far as whether or not the organization signs an African American player. Uh, so at that point, Ricky's got all the power uh, publicly, uh, but he still has to work with his front office. And so at this mm-hmm. point, Walter isn't the high-profile type. He doesn't have controlling interest, and it really wouldn't be a shrewd move on his part as a minority owner to suddenly start making noise. Um, you really don't want to tip your hand until you're in control, and that was the case with O'Malley. He would... Uh, make suggestions, sound decisions as far as business-wise. But while Ricky still had the support of the board of directors, he was going to be the face of the franchise in terms of the front office uh, and building the club. The thing that gets Ricky in trouble, and I don't say that in a bad way, but from a financial standpoint, when you look back at the brilliance of Branch Ricky and Jackie Robinson and everything like that, they also had the idea, and Ricky was part of this, that they could make money in football. And the All-American Football Conference, that went over like a lead balloon, and they just hemorrhaged cash. And you look at that, and you're thinking, what are you guys thinking? You have won the pennant in 47, your contenders in 46, and everything like that. Why would you suddenly try to wear two hats and run another sports franchise? And I think that's what got... Uh, Ricky in trouble business-wise because they lost a lot of money trying to do football uh, after World War II. And so from a business standpoint, he was brilliant with Jackie Robinson and baseball. uh, But football, you don't know behind the scenes. Walter might have been against football and said, look, you'll never make money. But as an organization, you can't have those debates become public. Uh, So they went with the football. They lost a ton of money. And by that time, uh, maybe Branch isn't getting as many points as far as, look, yeah, you're good with baseball, but business-wise, uh, structure-wise, as far as the ballpark and the future of the franchise, uh, maybe you're not the guy on a go-forward basis. Speaking of which, I just recently found, and I pulled it up right now, there's this old uh, – I think the first thing you put in when uh, you, for everybody out there when you put in football Dodgers, and you may have seen this on Facebook, uh, it's this – uh, it, it's basically volume one of, of August 1948, the, the Dodger. I, I guess it's a, um, a, a game. It's kind, uh, of like, it's kind of like a line. We, we used to have a publication called Line Drives uh, for, right. for baseball, and this is the football edition. And, and it's called Prince uh, and Dodgers Passes, and it, it, ha- it uses the identity of the Dodgers, which uh, the football Dodgers of the past had not done. 
and it has Borough President John, besides uh, a team photo, it has Borough President John Cashmore, uh, I, I can't, let's see what that, uh, Chapowitz, which is, uh, I guess, yeah. one of these players Bob, up there. Bob, Bob Chapowitz, who was a hotshot player from University of Michigan, uh, coming off the uh, a Rose Bowl victory, and little, there's a little kid in the photo, and oh, yeah. Pete uh-huh. O'Malley. Yep, <laughs> yep, there he is, right next to Branch Rickey, who's holding the football. <laughs> exactly, and so... You know, you, you think of the genius of Branch Rickey uh, with Jackie Robinson and everything like that, and those same people thought, you know what, we can do football. And there was Brooklyn Dodgers football uh, uh, under different ownership. And, you know, it wasn't just the Dodgers. The Yankees were trying it too right. uh, with, Del we- with Del Webb in New York. And on August 27, just- 1948, the, uh, the Yanks and Dodgers met at Ebbets Field. Yeah, but they just didn't, uh, from a business standpoint, it, it didn't go over well. So you're, going back to your original question as far as mm-hmm. business and Walter O'Malley and everything like that, uh, you could totally see a situation where in the 1940s, Walter is saying football is not going to be profitable, not good for the bottom line and everything like that. But if Branch had the bo- right. if Brant, if Branch had the votes, he was going to get football. Exactly, it's pretty. It's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, what what can throw off the the line of history? And it's uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, before we we close and before we get to the the last segment, uh, I love the fact that the New York Giants uh, football are still legally called the New York Football Giants. It, it all goes back. It all connects back to uh, some of these original ball teams, and it, it's just a fun thing to research. Now, speaking of uh, other members of the board of directors and, and other owners, uh, the, you know, they don't usually get any fanfare when it comes to discussing the history of the ball team. And I really love 42, but if you look at it, you know, the, the board is never something that, that's ever really brought up. Branch Rickey is there, and he makes the decision and, and tells some, some people. And uh, the McKeevers, uh, going back to Steve and Ed McKeever, who, uh, who owned half of the, the ball club with Abbott's uh, dating all the way back, um, they 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 had a child. Uh, Steve had a child named Deary McKeever, who married a man named Jim Mulvey. Now Jim was also an executive at, uh, at Samuel Goldwyn Productions. I found out. Uh, and when Steve died, Deary got the shares. Now, what what were Jim Mulvey and Deary Mulvey's roles in the late 30s and early 40s? And generally speaking. They didn't sell their shares until 1975, so how would they interact with, with this team, and, and what was their role to the public as, uh, with the Dodgers? Well, they would have been on the board, and uh, many times you just see board members, and you don't necessarily need to be outspoken. Uh, you don't necessarily need to be in the majority or high profile. Uh, many times you have longtime board members who are supportive, and it becomes a legacy. And in the case of Jim and Jerry Mulvey, uh, they were with the ball club for a very, very long time, and now a spring training award is named in their honor. Uh, there's an actual picture of Jerry Mulvey on a horse in the 1930s, and the interesting thing about that is that's how Barney Stein got started as the Dodger photographer. He was at a park one day, saw a beautiful woman on a horse with a great background, took a picture of it and put it in the paper, and it turned out that that was the daughter of the Brooklyn Dodger uh, owner or board member. And just because of that and that one little link, that's how the famous Barney Stein got connected with the Dodgers, just because of a gal on a horse one day. 
Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely remarkable. And with with Deary with Deary Mulvey, would she be basically just a figure in the community since she lived so close? Well, I think that she would have been, and also she was kind of interesting because she in 1962 it turned out that. Uh, she was in attendance for opening day at Dodger Stadium, and she was also the only one that day that had been in attendance for opening day at Ebbets Field in 1913. So when you have people like that and McKeever's and Muldy's, uh, they become part of the Dodger family because there aren't that many times in the uh, hierarchy of baseball, you had so many different types of people on boards of directors. Uh, for example, when the Angels uh, started, Walt Disney was on the board of directors, Firestone, the tire magnet, uh, the, 19, uh, the 1950s with uh, Branch Rickey putting together the Pirates, Bing Crosby was also a famous uh, member of the board of directors. Kind of like modern day, like Jay-Z with the basketball nets. Uh, sometimes it's just fun to be associated with the team. Uh, so you buy into it, and you don't necessarily have to have a big piece, but it gets you to be uh, part of the picture. So uh, the, they just went along with it. Uh, they would uh, uh, be supportive, be in the community and things like that. O'Malley was running the show uh, from the 50s and 60s and 70s and everything like that, um, but having friends like the Mulvies and the McKeevers uh, was just part of the landscape. And uh, they were thought of highly, and that's why the awards are still named after them, because uh, the names are still so familiar with Dodger fans, uh, both McKeever and Mulvey, uh, on the landscape with others like uh, O'Malley and John Smith and then later May Smith. It's pretty remarkable that I would bet that the majority of people around that area who uh, either live on McKeever Place or live near McKeever Place, have no idea, number one, that it used to be called Cedar Place, and number two, why it's called McKeever. Well, I think that's like anything in history, and that's the fun part uh, with my job as team historian because, you know, I can't sit there and think that I know everything about the franchise. You're always mm-hmm. learning new things, and that's the fun part. Just to go back 100 years, uh, even reading a letter from whoever was in charge at the time in 1890 with a, with a letter to the fans promising a great season, a great ballpark, saying, you know, we know the last ballpark burned down, but this one will be great and things like that. You know, and you fast forward 100-plus years, it's the same thing with fans. You you want to promise them a good time and, and hope that things work out well. And along the way, when you look back, you see all these things because on a daily basis there's so many personalities and people behind the scenes uh, that the people like the Rickies, the Robinsons, the O'Malley's, you remember them for the test of time. Uh, but there are so many people on a daily basis. So when you look back, uh, then you then you realize, uh, you know, Jim Mulvey and his movie studio background, uh, Derry Mulvey and the Barney Stein picture on the horse, everything like that. That's when it's fun to look back and see some of these characters that have been part of the franchise. It's it's fantastic. It's uh, fascinating. And even though, as you mentioned, 1890, I certainly would like to pick your brain on some stuff uh, dating all the way back to 1890 and uh, talking about Charlie Evans, because I'm sure you have a lot to talk about with that. And, I, you know, you, you have to know all the history to tell even a little part of the history. Well, it's fun, and that's the nice part, because we start by talking about a pool party in Arizona that went awry, and uh, you can flash back to 1925 when... Uh, Ed McKeever got a cold going to Charlie Ebbett's funeral, and suddenly a week later there was another funeral for uh, Ed McKeever. And-
you look at just things that happen and that's part of a franchise it's it's mirroring life it's mirroring entertainment it's mirroring our mirroring our country's history and uh for a franchise that's been around so long think of everything that's been in this country uh invented or developed or everything like that since the 1890s and we have this steady timeline of this team called the Dodgers and other nicknames but ever since 1890 being part of the National League. It's remarkable. I think you basically summed up uh, a big thing that I'm trying to uh, to do with this and, and trying to tell the story of, uh, you know, part partly the story of our country through just 20 years of our existence uh, that I that I find to be just uh, such an important part of our modern history. And I appreciate you, you know, giving us your insight on it. And, and you certainly have a fantastic angle. And please... You're welcome back every every time, really. If you want to call in anytime you want, whatever show we're on, please. Well, Sam, it's not only my pleasure, but uh, it's fun talking about all of this with your project because I can tell the enthusiasm in your voice and also uh, the great knowledge that you have. And you just go back and you, you're just going through the looking glass and this, this thing called Dodger Baseball that everybody's been a part of for so many years uh, for me, it just never gets old. Mark, thank you so much. My pleasure, Sam. And that's our show, everybody. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, take care. On Monday, we're going to have Rich McCabe, who was uh, the, the ball boy, or I'm sorry, bat boy for the Giants from 1954 to 1955. So that should be very, very exciting to talk talk to him. Thank you very much, everybody. Take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.